This week marked the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Some of you remember that from a first-hand experience. It was fun to hear the stories of those being interviewed who had been there. And I was struck as I heard them of their youthful voice still present when they reflected on that experience. From the baby boomers that I know, that was a radical shift from what people had known before. And the 60s indeed challenged the power of the authorities and the system that we all live in and through and under. And it was a radical thing to be young at that time, a desire to change the world. From what I understand, the parents of those folks in the 60s were scratching their heads, wondering what these young people are up to and where this was all going to go, maybe filled with a little bit of fear and trepidation by what they saw because of the uncertainty. And it occurs to me that this happens with every generation. Because you see, I was with, we were with friends this past week, and we were talking about the fact that we went to a wedding. They went to a wedding recently of a kid, an adult, who's of their kid's generation. And they found themselves saying old people phrases, like, what is this music? <laughs> or, I can't believe that's what they wear to weddings now. How does it happen, these generational transitions? They seem eerily consistent, even in their variety. And you see Jesus showing us that it's been this way for all time. In the gospel lesson today, when Jesus expresses his frustration, his irritation, his impatience, his exhaustion, and his perseverance, we hear him identify or clarify for us where the division lies. It's in the generations. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother against, son, da mother against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's where it happens. And he is frustrated because it is so that every adult generation, which has crafted the system that they've become accustomed to, wants to keep it in a homeostatic way, a homeostatic place. It's just the pattern we fall into as we get older. We built the system, we built the structure, and we want it that way. We know how it works. We know what the rules are. We know how to function within it. And in some cases, it's been a success for us, and we want to keep that success. And so we look to protect it, and Jesus has seen this happen over and over and over again. You could consider it kind of a tribal identity, if you will, and it is very present in our day and age. When I reflect on the people who, you know, faked or paid someone to fake their child's college admissions so that they could have the secure future that they envisioned for them, isn't that a sense of this kind of thing? The parents said, we want this for you, and it looks like you might not get what we have created for you, so we're going to go outside of the bounds of legalism even to get you secure in that which we've created for you. It seems to happen everywhere. Yes, indeed, some people break the law and some people don't, but there's this commitment, it seems, on the parent generation to do whatever it takes to make sure their kids have the securities that the parents have established. It's an amoral thing. I mean, even the mafia takes care of their own. You've seen The Sopranos, right? And you see it even in our community. 
when I think about the anxiety that I'm aware of in our young people, it's really born from an earnestness of the parents to secure their kids' future. Oh my goodness, we say as the parents, we want you to have the best. We've worked to make this possible for you. And we would hate for you to lose it. And so here, do this and say that and sign up for this. It's a lot for a young person to bear. And indeed, it becomes oppressive. And it can diminish or even, you know, put out the light that is within them. That doesn't help anything. And yet we know that education provides wonderful opportunities and a secure future for all. It also happens to make our property prices um, secure as well. And I can use this even as an illustration that I think Jesus would give a nod to. If you know that education makes all the difference, why is it you only think it makes all the difference for your kids? Why is it that, that you consider that education makes all the difference for all people? And if you're concerned about the property values of your house, then why aren't you concerned about the property of others as well? This is the hypocrite line that Jesus is challenging his listeners to. How is it that you know how the system works and yet you, you pretend like there are boundaries to it? It's a tribalism that humanity has fallen into over and over and over again. And although we might not have fancy names for our tribes, we still have them. We still know where the parameters are. We still know what the structure is. We still know how to be secure even within it. And Jesus has a problem with this, has always had a problem with this. God has always had a problem with this. Because the system always has winners and losers. The poor will always be with you, Jesus says. Why? Because every homeostatic system has losers within it. And this is what Jesus is challenging us to. It's a big challenge to be sure, to own our life in Christ, to live as followers of Jesus, to use the resources that we have, both known and unknown, even to take the time to consider the resources that we do have is a job in itself. But it's holy work. The late Toni Morrison, the author, contributed to our American um, understanding in many ways, both deep and wide. And I came across um, a reflection on her lecture when she received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993. The person writing the reflection highlighted how she had emphasized the power of words. That's what her lecture was about, the power of words. Not only can they do positive things like liberate and empower and imagine and heal, but they can be used for evil as well. In that lecture, she said this quote, oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence. My friends, if we read the signs of the time, we see that we are in a violent situation. We would like to think it isn't true when the pain subsides or when we're blind or deaf to it. But it is. There are violent words being said and there are violent acts being done. And if we can read the signs of the times and live not as hypocrites, we'll see that nothing will change the violent structure unless we do something to change it. 
unless we take on learning how to be nonviolent in response, unless we practice words that will liberate and empower and imagine and heal. And we have to find our own words because those are the only words we have. But the word logos, Jesus himself has shown us that we have them within us. And our work as his disciples is to find our words, the words he has given us, the words that he calls forth out of us as his followers. Believe me, it's going to take some practice. You will find that you'll need to say it several times before it sifts down to what you really want to say. I'll be honest and say that that's one of the things I love about preaching is I have to get my words about me. You all ask it and expect it of me on a weekly basis. And so I walk around my house practicing them, sifting through them, figuring out which ones are going to stick and which ones don't. And if a phrase comes out and I'm surprised by it, I take a moment to figure out what it's trying to say to me. It might not be for public discourse. It might be something I need to work on. Each of those that I've asked to speak their words from either this pulpit or in a reflection um, for stewardship, every single person has thanked me. They said it was really helpful for me to practice, to find words about this. I'd never done it before. So I can give every single one of you a chance up here. It's going to take a while to work through even just this crowd, right? We only have 52 Sundays a year. But I can also remind you that you can do this starting this afternoon, starting this week. Think and consider, ask yourself the question, what will I do this day, this week, to learn about nonviolence? How am I going to school myself in this principle? How am I going to find a way to speak against the violence and not be sucked into it? Because it's going to be a rough road, and I don't want to lose myself in the middle of it all. Violence is most familiar to me. It's what I hear. It's what I see. It shows up on my news feeds all sorts of ways. How am I going to claim the voice of Jesus in this midst? How am I going to speak so that my silence is not complicit? How am I going to take up this nonviolent work so that the violence doesn't keep going and going because it will keep going and going? It's only going to keep gaining strength, one thing being bigger and greater than the next. This is the work of the church, and we are the church. I can't do this by myself. Neither can you. But together, uh, that addition, the sum of us all, makes a difference. And it's in faith that we take those actions. In Paul's letter to the Hebrews, he talks about people who have lived in faith before. Now remember this, folks. This letter was written close to 2,000 years ago. Hear the struggle of the Christians then, the followers of Jesus then, who were trying to make decisions about what it meant to be a disciple. Paul wants to encourage them by the witnesses and the testimonies of those that have gone before. He wants them to not grow weary in this battle, to allow the stories of the faithful to empower and strengthen them as they go out into the world. He looks to familiarize his listeners with them, but he acknowledges that the stories would be too numerous. He starts off with just a few people, 
the, the Hebrew people crossing over the Red Sea, about the walls of Jericho falling, about Rahab. And then he goes into a long list of people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And he says, I don't even have enough time to tell you about these folks. Because their stories are big of how they lived in faith of the promise of the kingdom of God and how they participated in bringing about that kingdom. It's a rough road, he reminds them. Some, in faith, they did do marvelous things. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched raising fire raging fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They won strength out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight that evil that was encroaching upon them. These are the wonderful things they did, the unbelievable things they did in faith. And others in faith suffered. They were tortured. They received floggings, even chains. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They had to do what they could to protect their lives. The battle of evil and good is immense and beyond our comprehension, but I don't think it's beyond our knowing, and I think it's our knowing that makes us pause. To fight the evil of violence requires a different kind of strength than we can muster on our own. But Paul encourages his listeners and encourages us to remember that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And in remembering their witness to the faith, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely to us, the sin that makes us think only of ourselves, the sin that makes us do horrible things to another person simply because we can't figure out what else to do. Let us lay that aside and instead run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, keeping our eye on Jesus, the pioneer, and then also the perfecter of our faith. He will complete our actions because we see in him a willingness to endure the cross, even the shame that came with it, so that he might make a better kingdom for all. I need your help. The world needs your help. As followers of Jesus, this is our job. Let us be in conversation. Send me what you find on your Google search or through your research that you do. Tell me what you're interested in exploring. Let me receive what it is that you're doing in this world to speak against the, the, the evil and the violence that is prevalent. We've got to get started now because it will only get worse. And I hope that we can encourage each other in the faith. I'm strengthened by you, and I in turn intend to strengthen you. This is God's economy, and he will perfect us all. Amen.